What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Scott Lynn is the founder of Masterworks. Masterworks is an investing platform that for the first time ever, investors can purchase and trade shares in multi-million dollar works of art by artists like Picasso, Monet, and Warhol. Scott's entrepreneurship journey started when he was just 15, where he built what became the most popular game on the internet during the dot-com boom. He didn't stop there and has founded multiple companies and knows what it takes to build a business. This episode dives deep on his frameworks and what he does to see the white space where others don't. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple, too, to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Looking for your next getaway to a beach paradise? Ever consider Tulum, Mexico, which is one of my favorite places to spend a few days? Then look no further than Colibri Boutique Hotels to make your trip to paradise one you'll never forget. Head to ColibriBoutiqueHotels.com to see their hotels, all of which offer their own unique feel. Calibri not only has built amazing hotels, but have partnered with some of the best chefs and mixologists on the planet to make your stay truly memorable. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Scott, so let's begin the conversation at the start of your day. Is, is there any routines you have or have implemented in the past? 
You know, I, I would say actually for for start of the day, um, that's, a, that's a great start. That's a great starting question. So, um, you know, frankly, I'm not much of a morning person. So, uh, I typically start my day at you know six thirty, six forty five. Wake up, uh, coffee. Um, I would say half of the week I work out, the other half I work out in the evenings. But yeah, pretty 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 boring start start to the day. Yeah, no, I mean, we're not looking for anything typical here. I'm wondering if there's any strategies that you have. They might be small little things, even just prior to getting to the office. Is there there anything you do just to get your mind right? You know, for me, most of my day, and I guess how I think about my day, is really um, task management. So I always have a uh, just a running uh, task list that I keep in, keep in to-doist, um, have a very structured calendar, um, because I just find if I don't, personally take initiative to organize my day, it usually winds up unorganized. Um, so I guess I'm, a, I'm just one of those personalities that's, that's always moving through a list of tasks in my head, if that makes sense. No, it does. You mentioned the calendar. Do you have almost every minute of your day actually booked on there? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think unfortunately these days I have, I have more than the the number of minutes of the day booked on my calendar, but yeah, I mean, every, everything entirely scheduled out for better or for worse. When did you start doing this? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, you know, I mean, so, I, so I'm kind of early, early days tech entrepreneur, um, really starting with technology in kind of the, uh, the late 90s. So I sort of remember the, the evolution of all, all of these tools. And, you know, I would say version one of organizing my life was actually with, with email. So, you know, very, very early days of... Um, task management, it, it used to just be creating different folders in, I can't remember what the very kind of first version of an email client was, almost like whatever it was after after like Pine in the mid-90s, um, but creating different email folders to, to organize um, what needs to get done based on tasks. And then I, I think eventually that, that transitioned into um, more calendaring type tools. Um, but yeah, any, anyway, I've, I've been doing that for a long, long time. Any gadgets or tech apps, anything like that that you love using? Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, in, in today's world, um, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, I guess, sort of organization and then communication in two different buckets. So organization being things like, I mentioned um, this task app, Todoist, which I use um, for very simple tasks for both me and people that work for me. Um, more, you know, complex tools um, in terms of like development management and things like that we've used in, in different businesses and then communication separately. I mean, in today's world, communication really is just Slack, I feel like. Um, you know, it's funny, at other other businesses in the past, we would actually run different chat clients to try to uh, mimic some of the benefits that Slack has today. But in today's world, Slack really, really does cover most most of the communication gaps. So I think between organization tools and communication tools, people are just you know two x or three x productive today as they were ten years ago. You mentioned that extra productivity with communication. You're always connected. Is that frustrating for you? Do you ever try to escape getting those constant emails and texts? And if so, is there anything you do? You know, th- this is probably an unpopular comment, but but. But not really. Like I'm, I'm not sure I, I subscribe to this whole concept generally. And people that, that have worked for me in the past have laughed at this comment. But this whole concept generally of work-life balance. Um, you know, I think there's there's a lot of people in today's world that would say turning off from devices is a good thing. 
And while that certainly can be a good thing, like I think it's a good thing, for example, before going to sleep, and I do think there's lots of research to show that blue light is is problematic. Um, but generally, like the benefit of, of people being always on today, I think far outweighs the negatives. Um, you know, again, just the level of productivity that, that the average average person can have today compared to 10 years ago is, is, is so significantly more. You mentioned that productivity. When you think back to yourself 10 years ago, what are you doing more today that's made you more productive? I don't know if it's that you're, well, I think it's that you're, you're doing things faster and the, the, the wait time or the latency between interactions with other people is far less. Um, because of communication tools and because of, of how things are organized. Um, you know, even, even just if you think about the, uh, the number of services that are available to startups today to, to help them get, get off the ground, even simple tools like Intercom, um, you know, all these features we used to have to actually build for businesses to make businesses successful or productive um, are kind of available today in different SaaS tools for like $50 a month or $100 a month or $200 a month. So yeah, I think it's just it's just much easier to to be productive today based on on a lot of those tools. Yeah, you mentioned productivity. I'm thinking how how are you more productive instead of spending an hour here talking with me? What do you do to protect your time? Well, I guess I guess my point is the opposite, which is that I, I think I'm more productive because I think the the interaction with other people is is so much faster today. Right. So even if you think about business communication, just the ability to communicate on Slack, whereas you know, ten years ago people would schedule calls all day long and those calls would be very inefficient because people would spend an hour on a call talking about things that you could really resolve in, you know, five minutes over emails back and forth or in today's world, one minute through a Slack communication between a couple of people. So I just think the compression of interactions has has increased and that's what's really allowing people to be more productive. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. So let's go back to that origin story. I want to know even before you got started in the internet and tech, what was a young Scott like? Uh, well, I, so, you know, my, 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 my story is a little bit atypical in that I, I started my first business in high school. So I was, uh, you know, I think I was 15 or 16 years old and we wound up, um, sort of in this dot com unusual, uh, growth story where me and, and a friend at the time created, um, this game online, which I, I don't know if you remember in the late nineties, like these punch the monkey banners that were all over the internet. Um, that was my first company and it wound up being the most popular game on the internet between 1998 and 2001, I guess. Um, so I, you know, I graduated high school with, uh, I think, you know, 50, 60, 70 employees working for me. That company eventually grew to 150 employees. So I had this really rapid progression of learning experiences at a very young age around running a business. Um, most of which were just trial and error with lots of error. Um, so that that was that was my first company and really my my first work experience. No, I I absolutely remember the game and the punch of the monkeys. I'm thinking, how does that idea even come to be? You mentioned you're around 15 years old. What was going on that that happened? You know, to us it was it was just this so it was this very simple concept. There was a um, I'm trying to remember the name. I think that the very first ad network on the internet was this ad network called the Commonwealth Network. And if I remember correctly, Commonwealth at the time would pay pay a publisher, meaning anyone who built a website, um, 
a penny a click for anyone that clicked on an ad from the Commonwealth Network. I think that's the right math. And our whole concept was if we can bring people to this website, so if we can purchase a click for a penny, bring people to a website that's a game, get them to click on multiple ads when they're playing the game, then we spend a penny and we make three pennies. And if we can spend a penny, you know, millions of times and make three pennies millions of times, that's a really great business. Um, so that, that was really the idea behind the game. I mean, we weren't, we weren't gamers. We didn't have any experience in advertising. It was just this simple concept of sort of arbitrage between those, those two different, two different things. Had you done anything in, in terms of arbitrage prior to that, even on the, on the playground? I, I'm just trying to think how, I mean, this isn't the most normal strategy for a high school <laughs> to think about. No, you, you know, my, so I, I guess when you think about experience that I had prior to that, so I was, I mean, I was always very interested in, in technology. My dad was an engineer, so um, I was either building computers for money or I was running BBSs, and I don't even know if a lot of your listeners don't even know what a BBS is, but a BBS is sort of pre-internet days. You you would run um, these, these systems, basically, where computers through dial-up modems um, interacted with with each other, like chat and share files, etc. Um, so I was just kind of a geeky technology kid. What's it like having seventy employees when you're graduating high school? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I would say very stressful. You know, the, <laughs> I could the uh, yeah, the the learnings. I, I mean, it was it was such a weird time. You know, the the dot com boom was. I still think the most interesting, fascinating moment of tech to live through. Um, you know, there was, I mean, as a kid, there were all, there were all these different emotions, right? I mean, my mom kept asking me when I was going to go to college, my, you know, they, it, it, you know, from a business perspective, you know, I was making all sorts of mistakes, hiring the wrong people. We were, you know, growing too fast. We were spending money on the wrong things. Like it was, it was just a, uh, a, a continuous process of, of learning. Um, but you know, in, in fairness to us, I mean, it was one of the very few internet companies at that point in time at scale that was, that was profitable. So we did, we did make it work, but, uh, but a lot of it was, was rapid fire trial and error. Have you ever experienced that rapid learning like you did at that time? No, but, but I think that's, that's, that's sort of a, a progression that everyone goes through, right? I mean, you, you, you learn the most and you make the most mistakes younger in life. And then the older you get, you hopefully learn from those and you make less. Um, I mean, I, I was just, you know, I, I, I literally had no experience whatsoever. So I was really just learning, learning as I went. Did you guys have any mentors or, or anything that could even show you the ropes at all? Yeah, you know, I did. And, and it's interesting. I'm, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but, but one of the things that I did very early on that I think was very unique and a lot of the, even the managers at that company would talk about this is I, I focused heavily on reading. So, um, we, we actually, at that company, we, um, I don't remember the frequency, but I think we had everyone on the management team read one book on management every month or every two weeks. It was a pretty frequent, frequent occurrence and then talk about learnings from those with the team. And, you know, part of that was probably in hindsight, me learning on the fly. But I think part of that too was 
back in those days, there, there weren't, there's nobody that had internet experience, right? Like when you were hiring a salesperson, you would hire a salesperson from a traditional industry and train them on the internet. Or when you were hiring a developer, you would hire, you know, an engineer who knew C from some other industry that wasn't internet related and like train them, you know, some, some I don't think PHP or anything existed then, um, but, you know, train them on, on whatever programming for internet stuff. Like it was every single person you, you hired, you were training. So I think, just as a business and as a culture, we were we were always in learning mode. When you're in learning mode, were you just storing things in your brain, or was it more systematical, taking notes, any anything along those lines? Oh yeah, I mean, a, a lot of it was, um, I guess, us coming up with, or us developing what we thought were best practices, and then making sure those best practices were followed within the company. So, for example, at, at that business in particular. Um, and this was before a lot of companies talked about this and, and they were doing it, but we, we sort of came up with core values. Um, and then we would rank everyone based on those core values. And we, and we used that a lot to influence how we thought about hiring people and how we thought about turning over people. And, you know, again, for better or for worse, at that point in time, it, it just, it was, it was hiring people was so unpredictable because people didn't have the skill set. You know, there's no experience, there's no track record to really measure them on. So you, you would just kind of hire them, see if they worked. And if they didn't, it was really important to move them out fast. Um, so we did, try to, we did try to develop a lot of frameworks in terms of how to think about different things systematically um, over time. With the hiring, you mentioned how unpredictable it was and not really knowing how an employee was going to execute. Was there anything you actually were looking for in them? You know, it's funny when I was, when I said that, I was just actually thinking in my head, what were those four values? And I think they were, man, I haven't I haven't recalled this in years, but I think they're I think they were execution, work quality, teamwork. I'm spacing on the last one. Um, there was a fourth, but they they were they were relatively general. But I, I you know we we developed that framework, and then we we would rank people by that, and we would try to increase productivity by talking to them about how they were in those, those four categories. Um, it's funny, even like today, you know, I think about it now and I think about that filter through just people I work with. And I, and I do think it's a, I do think it's a good filter. Any other frameworks that you're still using today? It, it could even just be for yourself, how, how you assess new problems, how you assess new businesses, things along those lines. Yeah. Again, that that's, a, it's a good question. I, you know, I would say that early in, Early in my career, I focused very heavily on execution, right? Productivity, um, getting things done, uh, and 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 that was my primary focus. I think as my careers evolved, um, I focused more on on strategy. Meaning, it doesn't matter how well you execute if you're doing the wrong thing. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs get pigeonholed into a certain concept or a certain business or a certain strategy that isn't good to begin with, right? Like CAM total available market is small or, it, you know, it's not differentiated or it's not really solving a problem and they just execute, focus on execution only and, and they miss the bigger picture. So I think today when I, when I think about value creation and startups, I tend to think more about what is the strategy, right? Like, what are we doing? What is the available market size? Is it differentiated? Um, all of those things, more of a, in, in a very technical sense, like a Michael Porter five forces framework. Um, but in a general sense, just like 
every single day, are we, are we doing the right thing? Are we spending time and energy on the right problem? You mentioned Michael Porter a few minutes ago. You mentioned books. Any books you've gone back to over the years? I mean, the, the one book that I, I still think is, is really spot on and has been very influential to me is actually Porter's Five Forces. Um, you know, Masterworks is a, very, is a very young business still compared to other businesses I've had, but, you know, every, every other business still to this day does annual what we call Five Forces Reviews, where we um, talk about the different Five Forces and how, how we're, um, I, I guess, differentiating or, or avoiding things like new entrants um, or, or ri- particular risk to businesses over time. And again, that's just, that's just part of the learning that I think what you're doing um, or what problem you're solving is more important than how you're solving it. I'm thinking about how do you manage ego? when you're 17 years old and have 70 employees? Oh, I think you can't have, I mean, I I fundamentally believe that as an entrepreneur or even a CEO, you really can't have ego. It's counterproductive, right? It's counterproductive to teamwork. It's counterproductive from a leadership perspective. Um, You know, I think, I, I mean, it's simple stuff, right? But every business I've had sitting in, you know, sitting in whatever, an open office area with every employee, have relationships with every employee, I definitely know CEOs that run businesses in, in very me-centered or self-centered ways, but I, I don't think this culture is really scale. Where'd you get those values instilled in you? Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I think that's maybe just more of a uh, kind of rational, pragmatic approach to running a business or solving a need. I, I, I don't know how to think about that. I, just to me, like if you, you know, if you think about whatever a business like Masterworks, where. Fundamentally, we're trying to take an asset class that we think is very large and very interesting and make it available to anyone to invest in. Like That's the problem we're trying to solve, and that's what we're focused on. And whether, whatever, I have a big corner office, it just doesn't help solve that problem. So I just don't really think about, I guess, ego in that sense. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I just, I just wanted some, some clarity to, to your framework and how you go about things, because I think plenty of people listening right now could say that would have been really easy for you to have gotten caught up in that early success and not be able to replicate that. So you mentioned Masterworks. Let's, let's dive into Masterworks, your newest venture. What is Masterworks? Yeah, so Masterworks is really the first platform that allows anyone to invest in multi-million dollar blue chip paintings. Um, so if you take a step back and think about the the art market today, we think the, the art market is one of the most interesting asset classes, which historically has only been available to ultra-wealthy people to invest in. So in 2019, $68 billion in art will sell um, between, um, or I, I guess really around the world, between kind of ultra-high net worth collectors that that have been collecting art for a long time. Um, if you look at the asset class for the past 20 years, it's it's outperformed the S&P. Um, it's uncorrelated, which means that when markets go up or markets go, the stock market goes up or the stock market goes down, it doesn't necessarily follow the stock market. So it's this really interesting outperforming uncorrelated asset class, but the only way you can invest in it is if you have several million dollars to buy a painting. Um, so we're, we're trying to change that by purchasing these great works of art, uh, filing them with the SEC, and then allowing anyone to buy shares for you know twenty dollars a share in these different paintings. Yeah, you mentioned the great works. I know you guys have a an Andy Warhol, one of his famous uh, pieces of Marilyn Monroe that's available. I know you guys have a Monet as well. Where'd your initial interest in art come from? You know, I, I, I get that question a lot. I, I, 
I, I think my, my initial interest in, in art came from my mom, um, who was, you know, sort of like doing sketches and drawings and like amateur painter in the house all the time. Uh, so I kind of grew up with that a little bit. Um, the art market was very different when when I first started collecting. So I, I would say after the first business that we talked about, um, and, you know, I think now Masterworks is my my ninth business. Um, after the after the first business, I sort of had this interest in in the art market, and part of it was because it felt um, exclusive and inaccessible, uh, and I liked the idea of of kind of collecting slash investing in these different objects. Um, but it was a very different market back then. I mean, in 2000, the art market was radically different than, than today, just in terms of the number of participants, how big of a market, how deep of a market, the amount of liquidity, et cetera, it had. So, you know, I think I, I would describe it as sort of me dabbling with it back then and then becoming increasingly more interested year after year through, through today. Do you remember the first piece you purchased? <laughs> I have I have this uh, I have this blog post which um, people in the art world laugh about, um, where I, I talk about one of you know there are all these mistakes I, I made collecting, and one of the mistakes um, that you learn as a collector is that the the best examples um, by the best artists tend to appreciate the fastest, but. Um, B examples or C examples by artists um, often often don't, even if it's a great artist. So, for example, Picasso made, I think, 55,000 objects in his lifetime, um, the vast majority of which, 95% of which, will will never appreciate, even though they're a Picasso. So when I was, um, I think I was, I was 19 or 20, I, I bought uh, one of the largest collections of Picasso ceramics, um, which they're addition ceramics. Each ceramic is like two, two, you know, two hundred, an addition of two hundred or something. So I bought one of the largest collection of Picasso ceramics uh, from one of his neighbors in France that <laughs> that there was, and uh, yeah, I can't remember, it was like a hundred and something ceramics, um, and held those for held those for a long time, and ultimately donated them for for what for what I paid. Um, but that was that was the the learning experience there. <laughs> you learn, you move on. I, I'm interested, outside of Masterworks, when you're assessing a piece of great art, what are you looking for? Well, and I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're talking about from an investment perspective? Correct. Yeah, from an investment perspective, we're, we're generally looking at three things, a third of which is a little bit of a catch-all bucket. But the first thing is fair market value. What do we think the value of the object is compared to what it's being sold for? Um, second is appreciation rate. What is the historical appreciation rate for the object? And even if that object has not sold publicly in the past, we can sort of determine appreciation rate by looking at comparable works um, that have sold. And then the third thing, which is more qualitative, is how do we, how significant or how important do we think that work by that artist is um, in in art history, and how do we think that particular work by that particular artist will be qualitatively assessed in the future. And the, the you know, that third bucket is, is a harder one because it is more of an art market specific um, knowledge set, but that's also at least personally where, where I've had some of um, some of my greatest returns is just buying the best example by who at the time is, is, is a very important artist in art history, but is not an important artist in the art market and then seeing the art market eventually catch up with that. 
any great returns you'd like to bring up here? Yeah, you know, I I don't talk about them publicly so much, but I but I do have a few in in um, in in blog posts. I mean, I you know, I mean, I've I've bought paintings for um, I think there was a there was a de Kooning that I talked about where I purchased for eight or nine million dollars and sold it a couple of years later for fourteen million dollars. Um, there was a uh, painting which I don't think I've talked about yet, which I purchased for. $400,000 and later sold for $6 million. Um, you know, the returns can be pretty, pretty incredible um, in the art market if done right. Not a bad day at the office. You're mentioning how you initially became interested in art. I want to know how you go from interest to business idea to actually launching the business. Where was this so overwhelming in you that you needed to bring Masterworks to life? I don't. I don't really think about things like that. I guess I. I you know, to to me, my process, and and this is just how my brain works, is that every single day I have a new business idea or two new business ideas, and I write them down, and then I keep thinking about them, and I keep iterating on them. So Masterworks actually, you know, it is is a is, is a mini iteration of kind of trying to find a business that I think is interesting in the in the art market, and. You know, I I kind of prototyped or conceptualized um, a couple of other businesses for the art market, which never sort of made it past my my. I don't know. It's almost like a testing process that I run ideas through to try to convince myself whether or not they're good. Um, but yeah, it's I, I mean, for me, it's more about just coming up with a massive amount of ideas and then continue to think out, think through them, pressure test them, and eventually just getting conviction that something's good and it's worth pursuing. You know, I have to ask, what's your testing process? Uh, it's my secret. It's my secret sauce. Um, but you, you know, very, very, very high level. I, I would say it's uh, it, so. So it starts with strategy, right? So, what's the total available market size? What problem are you solving? How differentiated is is the idea? What's the competition? All basic, simple strategy questions. I think the harder thing for most entrepreneurs is to go from. You know what? What problem am I solving? What are the market dynamics? To is there real product market fit um, for my idea? And I and I think particularly in today's world, product market fit is what what most people struggle with. And I think you know, running a business on a on a daily basis, you you can get sort of these these high level indications on product market fit, right? Like. You know, our customers coming to your website and signing up. These are the media interested in interviewing you about the topic. You know, there's all all of these different kind of soft signals. But we try to do things that that really test whether or not there is engagement um, with people on on a particular problem or a particular idea. And that could be something as simple as surveying thousands of people and asking them questions, or that could be something more complex in terms of like actually building a prototype, running advertising, driving people to a website. And seeing if they if they you know quote unquote purchase your 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 mock product, um, I, I just think in today's world you know compared to ten years ago or twenty years ago, there's there's so many people chasing so many ideas. Like being an entrepreneur today is is a cool thing, which I still don't totally understand. But it's like everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, so the, the, there's there's just so many people approaching so many different problems at so many different angles. 
I love featuring people on the podcast like yourself to, to hear different frameworks, how you work. Can you actually walk us through how Masterworks works? <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if, if someone's listening to this right now and they say, hey, this sounds interesting. I love art. I'd love to have a piece. Can you walk us through the process? Sure. Like the, you, you mean the investing process? Exactly. Yeah, it's very simple. So, you know, Masterworks um, follows the, the exact same blueprint that um, a company follows when it, when it wants to go public. So just like, you know, Uber going public recently, Uber filed an S1 with the SEC and then started selling shares to, to retail um, and institutional investors. We do the same thing. We buy a painting, we file it with the SEC, um, and then we sell shares to, to retail and institutional investors. Now, the difference with us is that we're building a platform for people to invest directly via www.masterworks.io. So they, they come to the website, they create an account, they enter a payment method, and then they literally pick and choose different paintings that they that they want to invest in. Um, so it's a very streamlined, simple onboarding process that anyone can do in less than a few minutes. Do the people ever have the opportunity to see the paintings that they get a small fraction of? It's a great question. Uh, historically, the answer to that has been no, but we are um, next week opening a gallery in Soho in New York City um, where people can uh, can actually come into the gallery and see the paintings. And the, the vision for the gallery, um, which I think is really interesting in an, in an art world perspective, is that rather than walking into a gallery, seeing a painting on the wall and buying the painting off the wall, you walk into a gallery, you see a painting on the wall, you see an iPad next to it, which has a market cap, share price, and you can invest in paintings. So interesting. So, uh, I mean, it's funny, you've gone to online and now you're having this actual gallery presence. Is it just going to feature the works that you guys purchase? It's just going to feature the works that we purchase, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's, that's, our, that's our only focus. So I'm wondering about business, new ideas. What's next on the horizon for you guys? How do you continue to evolve here? For, for us, it's really about launching uh, additional products to attract um, different types of capital from different types of investors. So we, you know, we we've actually started um, in the opposite way that uh, that a lot of companies start, or, or I guess a lot of asset managers start, which is we've started working with retail investors immediately, and then we're moving upstream to larger pools of capital. Um, so that you know we'll soon be announcing a fun product where investors can invest in a Masterworks fund to give them exposure to art as an asset class rather than picking or choosing specific paintings. Um, but that that's how we think about growth. Very interesting there. I'm thinking about how relationships plays into all of this. And you've been involved in business here for, for a number of years. How do you assess relationships? How important are they to your past businesses and then to Masterworks? And when you say relationships, you're, you're really just referring to, net, to, to network? Correct. Like per, personal network? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I think, um, so I would say that when I, when I think about the first businesses that I started, I generally, you know, I wouldn't say that I didn't value relationships, but I think I didn't value relationships as much as probably other people in tech, meaning the, the first company I had, for example, was based in Kansas City. That's that's where I grew up. Um, I never thought it would be valuable really to move to Silicon Valley, for example, or SF. Um, but, but I think the, old, the older I've gotten, kind of the more businesses I've done, I've definitely learned that personal network and those relationships are critical for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, one of the main reasons is, is, is sort of those, those key moments or those key milestones that companies have, whether it's 
raising capital or whether it's selling a business, um, those key events are often driven by one, one-on-one relationships between the CEO and, and someone else. And I think putting yourself in a location or in situations where the likelihood of having those interactions or those relationships is higher does often lead to, to more success. So then you're based out of New York City now, is that correct? Yeah, based out of New York now. And, you know, New York is really, at least for Masterworks, kind of, I feel like the only city we could we could do this business in um, just because the, you know, the, the, uh, New York is second to SF in terms of, of tech, but um, the, the entire art world is really is really based here. And then the financial markets um, in terms of, of larger investors are all, all based here. Where globally are you seeing the most amount of investors come from in the art market? I mean, very specifically for, for our platform today, it, it really is New York City. I mean, I think 15% of our investors are, are in New York. Okay, fantastic. I know we're talking about your network relationships. I want to talk more about you. And it seems like you've done a lot of self-assessment here. Are there any skills or superpowers you think you've identified in yourself? Mm, that's a... That's a uh... That's a good question. I, I feel like I'm bad at answering that. I feel like you, you'd be better off asking, asking people that, that work for me. No, I, I know I know it's a, it's a tough question because you don't want to sound arrogant. Believe me, this is, I think it's important that you're able to look back on, on what you've done and how you work best. So it's less about this is my superpower. Maybe I should reword the question and just different things that you might do that are unique or that you've understood work well and you've doubled down on those. You know, you know, for me, it's really been this very rare, I think, skill set, um, which is tiring and exhausting at times of, of like a framework on how to how to kind of go through different startups and different industries. Like the first company was a casual gaming company. The next several companies were related to online advertising. The last company was a fintech a fintech company um, uh, where we provide financing to, to small businesses. Masterworks is, you know, I guess a uh, crowdfunding platform slash asset manager. So it's really, you know, what is what is the framework that I think allows you to jump between industries and start different types of businesses and still be successful? Um, and that that is a little bit what we've talked about in terms of how to think about strategy, um, how to think about, you know, finding product market product market fit rapidly, um, how to really get comfortable with. Iterating quickly on a on a daily basis, um, all of those different things that I think are really challenging and really hard. But but if you if you can find sort of the the the, the secret sauce or the the um, the process um, that works to finding product market fit and getting traction, you can I think replicate that across different types of industries. Um, now that being said, I've never. You know, I've never really been able, um, for example, I have, I have a lot of friends who, who run incubators um, where they, they hire different CEOs to incubate different businesses. I, I've never actually been good at that. Like, I've, I've, I think, been pretty bad at hiring people um, from ground zero to start a business and then investing in it and kind of trusting that they'll be able to grow it. I've been much better at starting businesses myself, getting them to a certain size, and then eventually finding a CEO and, and investing in it. You mentioned all those different industries, and it seems like you must be an incredibly curious person to tackle those different industries. Do you view yourself as very curious? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess I'm not good at reflecting on this. I don't think about this a lot, but I do think one of the things that I've been good at in the past is is kind of pulling different concepts from 
different industries or different things together to, to kind of create an idea like Masterworks, for example, you know, is really taking kind of an asset class from an industry that is not tech enabled at all. Um, and, and some ideas from the asset management industry and some ideas from crowdfunding, sort of putting them together to create this platform that allows anyone to invest in, in great works of art that, that really hadn't been done before. So that's sort of taking different different variables from from different things and putting them together to create something that we think has value. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on and I've been most impressed is just your your vast knowledge in different industries and then how you've combined them. You you seem to be able to see the white space where others don't. I know we hit on your idea generation process. Is there anything you even do just to to have some free space in your head to think through these thoughts? I feel like I have no <laughs> I feel like I have no no free space in my head. Um you know, the, the short answer is no. I mean, it, it, I mean, my, I feel like I'm constantly thinking about different things all day long, all night long, maybe to a detriment, to be honest. Um, finding free space is really hard for me. Um, you know, even, even just to kind of maintain stress levels. I mean, I, you know, I'm like a typical personality where I work out to maintain, to maintain sort of normalcy in my life. Um, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, I've always been very work focused, and I, and I think to a certain to a certain extent, my my personal life has suffered because of that. Um, but yeah, it's just very hard for me to turn off my brain to a certain extent. When trying to turn off the brain, do failures stick with you way longer, or, or how do you even assess failures? Oh, I, I mean, I guess I just think that that you know, failure just is is just part of growth, right? I mean, the, there's just uh, there's very few ideas that people start and they immediately take off and everything goes perfectly. I mean, those those examples do happen, and you know, I kind of describe those as is just winning the lottery, right? Like entrepreneurs win the lottery, just like the average person can win the lottery. Um, it does happen, but I think that's I think that's that's rare. I want to jump back into Masterworks, and we mentioned the the Andy Warhol iconic Marilyn Monroe painting, the Monet. How strategic are these first two paintings for the overall growth of Masterworks? Well, I, th- I think the Warhol is is very strategic. I mean that that Warhol we we think really um, meets all of the criteria that you you would want in an investment grade artwork. Meaning, there's there's a clear, strong historical appreciation rate. We bought it at a good price. Um, and we think just qualitatively, you know, if you look at Andy Warhol as an artist, there's two different types of silk screens that he did. There's the original Maryland paintings, which today are selling for $100 million. And then there's these reversal paintings where um, they're essentially the, the, the um, reverse of those silk screens that, that he created. It's the exact same iconic imagery, um, but, you know, one fiftieth the price of the original Maryland. So, to us, when we when we think about the world ten years from now or fifteen years from now, the the rarity of these original Maryland paintings is is going to be so high. The next best thing you can invest in or you can purchase are these reversal paintings. So definitely, that painting for the first painting is is, is strategic. What about other artists who are currently out there today that that don't fit the framework or mold? for masterworks, but you think these artists might be talked about in a hundred years from now, anyone like that come to mind? Yeah, totally. So I, you know, I describe those more as, um, at least from a financial perspective, momentum artists, right. Artists that are getting a lot of, of early traction, um, in galleries and, and what's referred to as the primary markets. The first time those paintings are sold rather than, um, successive times thereafter. 
Um, there's lots of artists that I think are interesting. I think Stanley Whitney right now is interesting. Um, you know, I recently bought a Cheney Thompson. Um, I think Lucy Dodd is interesting. Um, there's there's lots of artists today that that I think uh, you know are are good investments. Um, you know, that are that are south of five hundred thousand dollars. You know, we we just don't from a masterworks perspective. We we tend to focus on very predictable very safe returns, what we view as very predictable or very safe. So those artists still have too much volatility. They're living artists. Things things can always go wrong. Um, so they don't they don't meet the criteria for Masterworks, but I still think they're interesting. What about in your dream world? Money's not a thing. You can have any painting in the world. <laughs> I think it would be, uh, you know, I, um, I'm on the board of this organization called the Brooklyn Rail, and the founder is, is uh, just, just a, a brilliant, wonderful guy who's uh curious and you know one of the the uh the more well-known critics in the art community and he was a few months ago he asked me this question over dinner he said you know if you could own woman one by de kooning or autumn rhythm by pollock which would you which would you rather have and for art world people that's a really interesting question because woman one is this very um i think intellectual Deep, interesting work. Um, the main painting, that moment, New York owns, and then Autumn Rhythm is the, this kind of iconic drip painting by Pollock um, that also is very influential, but just intellectually to me less interesting. And I said, "Well, of course, Woman One." And he laughed. He said, "Well, me too. Of course, Woman One." Um, so, I, I, yeah, I think the answer would be Woman One by by Decoding. I'm glad to hear that. It's just interesting to see how you assess art. I, I had a great time hearing about you about Masterworks. Where can the listeners stay connected with you? Find out more about masterworks.io. Yeah, just the website, www.masterworks.io. Um, all, of our, all of our contact info is on the About Us page. Fantastic. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks, Sean. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Looking for your next getaway to a beach paradise? Ever consider Tulum, Mexico, which is one of my favorite places to spend a few days? Then look no further than Colibri Boutique Hotels to make your trip to paradise one you'll never forget. Head to ColibriBoutiqueHotels.com 
to see their hotels, all of which offer their own unique feel. Calibri not only has built amazing hotels, but have partnered with some of the best chefs and mixologists on the planet to make your stay truly memorable. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh. What got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.